After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Real Love Podcast Series, right here on the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This series features a variety of conversations with the world's finest thinkers and teachers, exploring Sharon's latest book, Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection. So welcome. Nice to see familiar faces, some new faces. Um... I'm Lily, and often in the room with many of you uh, supporting Sharon, so it's lovely to be here in this capacity tonight and share this practice with you. Um, For those of you who are new to chanting as a practice, There's a lot of similarities to it as a meditation practice or your beautiful triangle pose that you maybe did today. And here we use the mantras as the the conduit to pay attention differently. And it's not just when we sing the mantra, it's also listening back. This is fun because it's a group practice, call and response. So it's gathering your attention in the singing of the mantra and then gathering your attention in the listening back of the mantra. So I listen to you, you listen to me. And of course we have these very talented musicians here that make it so easy to come back when we wander and start shopping at Target in our mind, as we do. So, let's start with some ohms because this is what one does. (laughs) So you can close your eyes or leave them open and we'll chant three times. As you make the sound, feel it in every part of you, as though it's in every cell of your body, vibrating each part of you, the space around you.
Oh, oh, oh.
Noticing the queen of loving kindness is going to come out. And we'll sing a little more at the end. They sound beautiful. Thank you, that was so beautiful. So while we're transitioning here, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about Sharon, for those of you who are not familiar. She's the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. She's renowned for her down-to-earth teaching style because she offers a secular, modern approach to Buddhist teachings, which make them very accessible. She's a regular columnist for On Being, a contributor to the Huffington Post, and the host of her own podcast, The Meta Hour. She's also a New York Times bestselling author of 10 books, including her most recent book, Real Love. And we have that book outside on the mezzanine. I recommend it, it's fantastic. Sharon, it's such a pleasure to have you back. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I always wanted to be part of the band. <laughs> and thank you, Lily and Co. And Thank you, everyone from EBC, for the invitation. It's getting to be a ritual. We were here last year. Um, I think actually on Valentine's Day last year. So, And I feel incredibly lucky because I just get to talk about love. Um, so the first thing that came to my mind was actually uh, a much earlier book that I wrote called A Heart as Wide as the World. And... That was a book that, through much of its uh, pre-pub life, had a different name. I can't remember the name, but it was some name I didn't really like. And then I heard a colleague actually give a talk, and they mentioned that phrase, a heart as wide as the world. And I thought, that's it. That's my book title. So I called the long-suffering publisher. And I said, I want to change the title. And they were like, not happy. But finally, they said, okay. And then we needed a new cover, right? We need a new image because they'd already designed a cover for this other title. So a heart as wide as the world implies, right, expansion, openness, immensity, so this was a really long time ago. This is, you know, used to mail things to one another. <laughs> like, so they were like mailing me all these like vistas. And uh, one of the things they mailed me was, I don't remember the name of the painting. It was by Van Gogh, not the actual painting, but a copy of it. And it was this like big yellow sky. And down just in, in the bottom in a corner, there were a few crumbled huts. It was like a, a scene of total devastation. 
And I said to a friend, that looks like it should be the cover of The Grapes of Wrath or something like that. It's terrible. But I kept showing it to people because I wasn't you know, confident in my own view. So I showed it to this one friend, and she took a look at it, and she said, that looks like a world that could use some love. And needless to say, it didn't become the cover, but that phrase has stayed with me throughout all these many years, and sometimes more strongly than others, you know, much more emphatically and intensely than others. And this is such a time when I think this is a world that could use some love. And that is confounding, and it's difficult to understand, and it takes, I think, a real inner sense of, of what love can mean. Because for many of us, our conditioning, just hearing the word, um, implies being sweet, being nice, maybe uh, not honoring your own feelings, but just kind of giving in, being complacent, or it implies something very um, kind of conventional, like, uh, I love every piece of furniture in this room. I wish I had a bigger apartment. Um, and I love everything, certainly every calligraphy on the wall. And I uh, love, you know, sparkling water, which I do. Uh, you know, so is that the same? What does that mean? Or, and, or love implies something really conditional. I will love you as long as you love me in return, as long as the following 15 conditions are met, as long as Valentine's Day goes well. Um, I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake. And we know the fragility, the breakability, and ultimately the heartbreak of that state, right? And how it's not something that supports us, in fact. My most recent book, uh, Real Love, almost like the whole book was born out of this one line in a movie. The movie is Dan in Real Life. Um, is that a moan over there? <laughs> and uh, the line is something like, love is not a feeling, it's an ability. Love is not a feeling, it's an ability. And I got into some trouble with an editor over that who said, it is a feeling. And I said, well, I mean, of course it is a feeling. We know that is the conventional sense of love. It's a certain kind of feeling that we long for or we feel left out of, whatever the case may be. But think about love as an ability for a moment, not as something in someone else's hands to bestow upon us, and therefore not as something someone can take away from us. I realized I love the line because it reflected experiences I'd had in my own meditation practice where when I was doing loving-kindness practice, which I'll talk about in a minute, where I realized that before those moments, I had thought of love as really external to me and almost like a commodity. And it was almost like the image that kept coming to me was like the UPS person standing at my doorstep with the package in their hands and glanced down at the address and said, I don't think so. And it was like, and they went away. And when they went away, there was then no more love in my life. But when I realized 
that it actually was an ability. It was within me. It's mine. It's a capacity that exists within us no matter what, that may be covered over and hidden and hard to view and hard to trust, but it's there. And so other people, situations, life experience may kind of ignite it and, and you know, um, bolster it or uh, cultivate it, and others may threaten it, but it's ours ultimately which ironically also means that it's our responsibility, that if we want love present in the room, maybe we have to bring it in. If we want love present in a conversation or a confrontation, maybe we need to bring it in. So what does it mean? Um, it doesn't really mean liking somebody. It doesn't really mean um, wanting to spend time with them. In some ways, it's, it's one translation of this word metta, M-E-T-T-A, uh, which is uh, a Pali word language. It's language of the original Buddhist text. And if you ever go to or have seen the literature of the Insight Meditation Society, the center I co-founded, you see that word up above the doorway, metta. Tomorrow is our anniversary. Uh, at IMS, we moved in on Valentine's Day, 1976. So, we're, yeah, <laughs> that is amazing to me, uh, not least of all. Um, and uh, when we bought it, we we really went in 1975 toward the end of 1975 and found the place and uh, incorporated. It was a novitiate. It was a Catholic novitiate run by the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament, and that's what it set up above the doorway. So we moved in. We got someone to get up in this very tall ladder, and we said, could you say something about us? You know, sort of mix up those letters and, and get to something that means something about us. And they came up with metta. And then we had this whole big debate. I mean, this was a really a pioneering effort. There was nothing like this in the U.S., it was the first retreat center um, begun by Westerners and not referring back to kind of a singular Asian uh, monastery, for example. Uh, we, of course, didn't know what we were doing either, you know, and so we had to talk about everything. What is that, you know? Um, so we finally agreed to, to keep that word up there, metta, which made me very happy because that's what I wanted. Um, and I just like it. You know, somebody calls for directions, and whoever answers the phone can say it's a large brick building with white pillars, and it's got this word up above, metta. And they say, what does that mean? Then we, see that, we say that means love, or that means loving kindness, or friendship, which is really what we want to represent in the world. I find all those translations difficult in many ways. Uh, loving kindness is fine, and it's of course, the word we commonly use, but it's a little odd, isn't it? Like, you wouldn't necessarily, well, here you would be, but if you were in a restaurant somewhere else, you know, down the street, probably, and you were listening to the conversation, or you're overhearing the conversation at the table next door, it wouldn't necessarily be using the word loving kindness. But I was teaching once in uh, Brooklyn, and I got out of the car, and these two young women were approaching, talking about loving kindness. And I thought, I know where they're going. And they walked right by the yoga center, never to be seen again. 
And I thought, wow, it's like the hippest block in Brooklyn. Everyone's talking about loving kindness, but usually that's not the case. And so my concern is that it might make the quality itself seem somewhat removed from day-to-day life and uh, kind of precious in the negative sense of the word. I've had translators and scholars say to me, just say love. Stop being so cutesy. You mean love, say love. And that has all those attendant difficulties since we use that word in so many different ways. The literal translation of metta is friendship. And I have difficulty with that as well. Because for me, friendship implies wanting to hang out together. You know, let's go to the movies together. Let's have dinner together. Whereas metta is a quality of the heart. It means like an unburdened heart, a free heart that might not manifest for whatever reason in wanting to spend time together, in wanting to communicate. Um, You know, we, we think of love, and this is part of the fear, that if we are filled with loving kindness, our hearts are overflowing with love. That means we have to say yes. We have to acquiesce. We have to stop fighting. We have to stop protesting. Uh, we have to go to the movies together. We have to reform our lives in the image someone else wants. And really, it doesn't mean that at all. We know there's such a thing as tough love. There's such a thing as fierce compassion. Maybe because of discernment, recognition, wisdom, circumstance, we decide that the most skillful way to manifest, say, compassion is being pretty fierce. It's being intense. It's saying no. It's having a strong boundary. And that's not a reflection of like a diminished state of love. You know, it's not a reflection of an obstructed heart. And this is very, very hard for us to believe and and to kind of get, and it's also very important. It's important, of course, to be honest and to pay attention to what our motives are and where we're coming from, but uh, we can do that. You know, that's like the function of being aware of who you are and, and the function of mindfulness. And at the same time, we don't need to feel circumscribed and, and kind of socked in to a particular way of responding. And this really frees us to explore and take some risks with our attention, which is really what we're doing, to pay attention to ourselves in a different way. Most of us probably tend to have the habit of, you know, if you were going to consider your day at the end of the day, almost like looking back and evaluating, most of us would probably pretty well only remember the mistakes we made and what we did so do so well, we didn't say so well, and why didn't we, you know, stay home, why did we show up, why didn't we show up, whatever it might be. Somebody just sent me this video, Um, I'll have to find it and and retweet it or something, or like it on Facebook, it was um, this devastating video of these people who were adults of different ages, talking about how hypercritical they were of themselves, and harsh and punitive. And then they were shown pictures of themselves as young children and, and told, no, say it out loud to that one, to that person. And they couldn't do it. Right? And everyone's weeping. And I mean, it was so poignant. And somebody said, I can't say that to her. And the moderator said, you say it to you, you know. 
And the possibility exists of recognizing that that is, that's a kind of habit. And so we um, stretch. We take some risks. We see what it's like when we wish ourselves well, when we offer ourselves blessing, in fact, when we open to the possibility of joy and deserving joy at the same time. And in the practice of loving kindness, which is its own form of meditation, we have a sequence that we explore. We keep stretching in different ways, starting classically with ourselves. We move on to a, a benefactor, someone who's helped us. You know, sometimes people have really done a great deal for us, but we don't necessarily dwell in that acknowledgement. And what happens when we do, when we kind of turn that around? And this is not to say that any of these categories, which I'm going to go through, are fixed. Because life is pretty mutable. Um, it's always changing. Sometimes, for example, somebody will offer loving kindness to a benefactor, someone who's really helped them. And in the process, they start thinking, you know, there was that one time when I called you and you weren't really there for me. Maybe you're not my benefactor after all. And, you know, maybe you're my difficult person, which is really the topic of tonight. As the Dalai Lama said, quoting Shanti Deva, this great Tibetan sage, friends become enemies, enemies become friends. Life is mutable, it's changeable. But we just use these categories as a kind of structure in which to unfold that exploration. So we offer loving kindness to a benefactor. Sometimes there's a funny reaction also in offering loving kindness to the benefactor in that we have the habit of really denigrating that um, offering from us. You know, people will say, for example, uh, again with the Dalai Lama, they'll say something like, you know, I, I chose the Dalai Lama as my benefactor and I was offering him all this loving kindness and it was going great. And then I had the thought, what does he need me for? He's the Dalai Lama. You know, and I find that very interesting for a couple of reasons. One is, how do we know that? I mean, for all we know, he is totally sustained by the loving wishes and loving kindness of others. And what an interesting conclusion. What I have to give is so nothing. It's so meager. It's so insufficient. Right? That may not be so. And from there, we offer loving kindness to a friend. Sometimes we begin with a friend who's doing well right now. They're enjoying at least some success, and that tends to ignite a fair amount of envy or jealousy, just inevitably. Not inevitably, I should, I should retract that. Because I do know some people, the quality in uh, the Buddhist psychology of appreciating someone else's happiness is called sympathetic joy. And I feel like I do know some people who have that naturally, and it's kind of awesome. Isn't it like something good happens for you, and they're so happy for you? And you think, wow, that feels so beautiful. Whereas other people, it's like they may smile, but you really get the feeling they would be just fine if it all went away, and it feels so terrible. In contrast, but some people just have that naturally. They just, 
It's like a generosity of the spirit. It just pours out of them. For most of us, it's a training because it involves confronting certain assumptions like happiness is a limited commodity in this world and the more someone else has, the less is going to be for me. Or you have everything and you will forever. And I, I have nothing and I will forever. So there's several problems with that one. First of all, nothing is forever. Second of all, it is highly unlikely you have absolutely everything. And it's pretty unlikely I have nothing. If I'm breathing, I'm doing okay in some way. And there may be a lot I'm not looking at or not appreciating or not taking the time to savor, but it's unlikely that I have absolutely nothing. And then we offer loving kindness to a friend who's having some difficulty right now. And this kind of compassion flavor begins to permeate the loving kindness, the sense of, it's kind of like tenderness, it's the poignancy of life, wishing someone well, and perhaps knowing pretty accurately what they might do to get it together, and not being able to force it, because that's just not the nature of things. Thus far, as far as I know, no one has invented the chip that we can plant in someone else's brain where we have the remote control. And we can say, cheer up. You've been gloomy enough, right? It's not like that. But would that it were. I once, I said in a group that I felt that if I was in control of the universe, it would be a lot better a world. And someone challenged me. They said, are you sure? And I said, I am really sure. <laughs> it would be a lot better world. And I'm not in charge of the universe. That doesn't mean I don't do anything to seek change. I do everything I can to seek change, but within that knowledge, within that wisdom, so that control and you know, domination doesn't become the flavor of the effort, which is hopeless. Right? So we look at all those elements of offering loving kindness to someone who's not doing that great right now and everything that that brings up and steady our attention on, on that offering. We offer loving kindness to a neutral person, which is really like my favorite part of the practice. Um, although some people find it really boring. Uh, a neutral person is someone we don't strongly like or dislike. They're just kind of neutral for us. And it's suggested that if you're on a long-term intensive retreat, for example, you choose someone who's there because you'll run into them now and then. And if you're at home practicing, you choose someone you tend to run into now and then, somebody who plays a role in your life, um, dry cleaner, something like that. Uh, so I was first practicing this intensively on retreat, and I chose someone who was there, another retreatant who was um, the girlfriend, then-girlfriend of, of a guy who was also sitting there. And um, I didn't really know her, and we hadn't really talked much, but she was there, so I kept offering her loving kindness. And I was there for months. Uh, she left about a month before I did, and I left, and then I happened to run into her in the streets of Bangkok. And it was really startling, because in the whole formal practice 
I wouldn't say that I had great waves of emotion come over me at all when I was doing this offering. But when I actually saw her, it was like this thrill went through me. And I thought, oh, there she is, my neutral person. <laughs> wow. I'm sure she thought I was insane, you know. It's like, what's you, you know. And so that was 1985. So just this past year, I was in California, and I happened to be with her boyfriend, then boyfriend, you know, who's since moved on and had a life another life. And uh, we were talking about when we were practicing together in Burma. And he said, oh, yeah, remember that woman I was with? And I said, she was my neutral person. And it like happened again, you know. And, it was like, and he understood totally, you know, like, yeah, of course. So it, it's kind of fascinating to see the sense of connection that evolves. And in fact, my preferred translation of metta, M-E-T-T-A, is actually connection. It's a profound sense of connection. With ourselves, that manifests as a profound sense of belonging, presence, being a part of a whole. With others, it is connection. It doesn't mean huge waves of emotion. It doesn't mean a structure to that connection, like we're going to live happily ever after. Sorry, Valentine's Day, gods. Um, and it doesn't mean a mandate for a certain kind of behavior. But there's a profound knowing. Our lives have something to do with one another, that we do live in an interconnected universe. And the corollary to that is everybody counts. Everybody matters. Not everyone's going to be my best friend, but everybody counts. And the neutral person exercise is a perfect example of that. Because this person is as though nothing to us, really. But just because we are, in effect, paying attention to them, let's say every day when you meditate, something grows in the understanding, the realization of that connection. And then we come to the difficult person, which um, in a country like Burma uh, is usually translated as the enemy, which brings it into a much more dramatic territory. Um, and here, too, I, I co-authored a book uh, with Robert Thurman called Love Your Enemies, um, which is tough, you know? It's tough to understand the... I don't have, you know, um, I don't usually name my own books. That's just not the nature of it. But, uh, and we had long, long, long discussions about the name of that one because I didn't want it to seem like a lecture. I didn't want it to seem like people were being called bad for being angry uh, or for not forgiving or whatever. Um, and at one point, the book was good. Bob had seen a, a movie and uh, in the movie, there was a church, and you know how churches can have these neon placards outside with these sayings? So the saying uh, he saw said something like, love your enemies, it will drive them crazy. And that was going to be the name of the book. And I thought, okay, you know, that takes care of my problem, which is that fear that it's going to seem like sanctimonious and pushy and people are going to feel worse about themselves and uh, love your enemies, it'll drive them crazy. And then somewhere 
uh, Bob, I guess, got some feedback that that was like rude or something, and and the publisher agreed with him, and they took off. It will drive you crazy, and I was like so unhappy. But love your enemies. Here we are. Um, what in the world does that mean? You know, in this context, say of the loving kindness meditation or the meditative life, it again, it doesn't mean you like somebody, it doesn't mean you're going to give in to them, it doesn't mean you're ever going to see them again, it doesn't mean you force yourself uh, to act in a certain way. It still comes back to the unencumbered heart, the free heart, the ability to recognize that we are part of the same universe. From the Buddhist point of view, you'd go back to everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. We all want not just superficial happiness, um, but we all want to be really happy, truly happy, to know we have a place in this world, to feel at home in our body, our mind, this earth, with one another, to feel a part of something bigger than our limited sense of self. We all want to be happy. And it is so difficult. We get so many messages about what will actually make us happy. And we believe so many of them. And we just run. I sort of um, uh, temporarily ruined this young woman's life once where I was, I was co-teaching this six-day um, retreat. And the first night, I started talking about the phrase, it's a dog-eat dog world. So what we're taught often, right? Like, you will feel better about yourself if you put other people down and just demean them and don't help anybody. No one's going to help you, you know, like crush them if you need to. Just get ahead. It's a dog-eat-dog world. And, and so, you know, I, I was talking about it, and she got really upset, and she came up to the microphone, and she said, my whole life, I thought, the phrase was, it's a doggy dog world, like D-O-G-G-Y, D-O-G, like puppies and meadows, you know, and like, she said, that's horrible, it's a doggy dog world. I was like, yeah, I know. So the six days went by, and it was the end of the program, and she got up to the microphone again, and she said, I refuse to live in a dog-eat-dog world. I'm going to live in a doggy dog world. So I said, okay, you know. So love your enemies. What does that mean? It doesn't have to mean you're naive either. Um, when we structured the book, uh, Bob and I, it was actually off this Tibetan uh, system where it talks about outer enemies because not everyone in this world is on our side. And not every action is kind. There's a lot of cruelty. And, um, you know, we only have to be seen as the other, as negligible, as an object for someone to do anything to us. And there's plenty of that going around, right? But remember, it's our own hearts that we're talking about and our ability to be free. Uh, which doesn't mean being careless, you know, or being weak. It actually means being strong. It's a whole other kind of strength to have compassion, you know, to wish someone could come out of their suffering, 
and at the same time to act wisely in whatever that might mean. There's an old story that um, many people tell. It's actually about me, and as I hear these different versions throughout history that have come up, it's also quite amusing because I thought, it wasn't like that. It happened to me. So what happened to me was way back when I lived in India, which was the early 70s, I was in Calcutta and um, with a friend, and uh, we were going back to Bodh Gaya, which is where we had been practicing. Bodh Gaya is the town where the descendant of the tree is that the Buddha was sitting under when he became enlightened. So uh, we were leaving Calcutta, trying to get to the train station, and there was some riotous thing or another happening in the streets of Calcutta. And we couldn't get a taxi, we couldn't get a car. So we ended up getting a rickshaw. Now rickshaws in Calcutta were not even people on bicycles, they were running, right? So, uh, but it was the only thing we could do. So we got in this rickshaw and he was going through these alleys and these side streets and then this, this very large, apparently very drunken man came out of the shadows and grabbed him and stopped him and then he started pulling at me to pull me off the rickshaw and I was absolutely terrified. And the friend that I was with managed to like shove him away and we got the guy running again and we got to the train station. And the next day, um, I saw one of my teachers, this man named Menindra, and I was still very upset. And I told him what had happened and he said, oh, Sharon, with all the loving kindness in your heart, you should have taken your umbrella and hit that man over the head. <laughs> it's like, wow, you'll hear many versions of that story. Um, and there are lots of elements to it. With all the loving kindness in your heart, and take action, right? You don't have to not take action. We might fall into either error um, in the complexity of life, but this is the possibility. You know what it's like, we all do probably, when we're just lost in resentment, when we have defined ourselves as the agent of revenge, when we are just stymied by the, the fluidity of life. We're stuck. And I always like to examine these states, any state, you know, jealousy, rage, love, forgiveness, by using myself as the laboratory. Like, what does it mean to love myself? What does it mean to forgive myself? What does it mean to be enraged at myself? What happens? What does it feel like? What are the consequences? What's the nature? And you can see right away the difference between maybe admitting the pain of something we've done, but being able to move on with a determination to try to do better in contrast to being stuck in that incident as though it was the only thing we have ever done or ever said or ever can say or ever, you know. It's different, right? So, so we make the experiment. There's the outer enemy. Sometimes it's real. Sometimes it's not so real. It's a vast amount of projection going on and assumption. And we can have the, the knowledge and the, you know, the ability to discern. The inner enemy of those mind states, not feeling them, but when they completely take us over. You're consumed by anger. You're consumed by fear. You're consumed by jealousy. You're consumed by craving. It's not fun, right? There's no room to care about anybody else, to remember change, 
to have a sense of possibility, to feel connected in a bigger way. It really functions to hold us down and to limit us, and so on. So we look at all that, we apply all of those lessons as we pay attention to ourselves in a different way, as we pay attention to others, and ultimately all others. We move from offering loving kindness to the difficult person or the enemy, whether it's within or without, um, to all beings everywhere with a, a sense of affirmation that, in fact, all of our lives are connected, that we don't realistically live in a universe where we can assume that what happens over there is going to nicely stay over there. It's going to flow out over here. And what we do, it also matters because our lives are connected. So that's the trajectory of our path when we have that kind of, of heart commitment to keep using these tools. So why don't we sit together for a few minutes and then we'll just have some time for questions or discussion. And then singing. It's too bad I don't pay the cello. I could stay here. And we'll go back to the, the base of loving some loving kindness for ourselves in that why don't we just sit and feel, see if you can feel your breath, just the normal natural breath. When you find it in your body, wherever it's strongest for you or clearest for you, you can bring your attention there and just rest. See if you can feel one breath. And when you find your attention has wandered, see if you can gently let go, no judgment, no blame. And with a great deal of kindness toward yourself, just bring your attention back.
So thank you. We have time for just a couple of questions, and I can't see, so whoever's got the microphone is going to have to, maybe I can see silhouettes, if you have any, and if not, we'll sing, we'll sing anyway. Hi. Hi. Is it okay that I stand? Um, so my question is about um, being able to forgive your parents for not showing you what love is and not having an example of it and then being an adult and realizing that you keep screwing up relationships because you have no idea what you're doing. Mm-hmm. How to do that? How to forgive them? Well, um, probably I would try to reframe it. I don't think it's a question of forgiving your parents uh, or not forgiving your parents. I think it's a question of learning some skills. Because um, one of the really tricky things about forgiveness is that it never works if it feels coercive, you know, or uh, mandated in some way. And in fact, I feel like the most beautiful stories of forgiveness I've ever heard tend to be followed by somebody saying, but I'll never forgive them. You know, uh, somebody whose body was like riddled with pain after a terrorist attack saying, um, I'll never forgive them, but what I've learned is absolutely essential is to stop hating. And I thought, I'll take that, Right? But story after story after story. So I think it's too cumbersome to get involved in the idea of forgiveness as a um, project. But learn some skills. And you may find you're applying those very skills to your parents or the memory of your parents, after all. you know. But that's because they become such a part of you. Um, we learn skills. Uh, we learn to see our own minds, for one thing. you know, So that the things that come up we have a choice about, you know, many habits, many uh, fears, many things will come up. But if we can see them quickly and we have some clarity about a sense of meaning in our life, like what are our lives actually about, then we have a choice. You know, some things we follow, we nurture, some things we let go of because we can. Not perfectly, you know, every time, but... But it happens that way, so. Um, and the skills abound, you know, to really uh, know love from within. I mean, what I just said is also a little weird to think of training, you know, or love as a skills training. But it is a very Eastern uh, perspective rather than Western, where, you know, in something like the Buddhist psychology, love and compassion are considered emergent properties of how we pay attention. Right? Are you there? Are you listening? Or are you lost in thinking about your email? Are you uh, really listening? Or is there a whole bunch of assumptions going on about this person who maybe you've never met? Right? Um, are you lost in your own dread of making a mistake by, you know, being too spontaneous? Whatever it is, you know, we have 
we have a lot of options when we can really pay attention. And so it's considered completely trainable because attention is completely trainable. That's what meditation is. All is not lost. Hi. Hi. Um, I come from a very strong culture in Spanish. <laughs> um, but in my learning, always I heard this, forgive, but never forget mm -hmm. that. So I just wonder um, how I can separate this process because sometimes when you have the person or the situation near you, you know, I in my mind, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, but it's still feeling the strong, bitter feeling in my stomach. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder how I can work with that. Um, I would probably take a step back from the idea of forgiveness and move to compassion because nobody really behaves badly, I don't think, from a great place. I mean, I don't, you know, when, I, I don't, when we look inside, we see there's this beautiful statement of the Buddhas who said, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. If you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. And sometimes when, you know, through any kind of introspection, you kind of find yourself doing sort of a moral inventory, and you can feel how little love you had for yourself in doing what you did or saying what you said or holding back from doing or saying. Um, and also, you know, when you think you're capable of so little, uh, it's like, then it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. It's like, that's what you're going to devote your life to? And life goes so quickly. I mean, when I say we started the Insight Meditation Society in 1976, that's in lieu of saying the number of years ago, which, you know, it's a lot of years ago. We had our 40th anniversary some couple of years ago, you know. It's like really weird. It's so weird. And... You know, anybody who's ever sat with me or, or listened to one of my more recent recordings know that one of my big bugaboos is how when you have to, when you, like my age, you have to enter your birth year online and you have to like scroll down for like an hour and a half and, you know, and I keep complaining. I say, well, no one born in 2005 is going to buy your product or, you know need your service, and I'm still scrolling, you know, and I'm going down and down, that's ridiculous, you know? But life goes so quickly. I met so many of my close friends when I was 18, when I first went to India. You know, I was just talking about Ramdas the other day, who was at my first retreat as a participant, and he was like the elder. He'd already been fired from Harvard. He'd already been named Ramdas by his guru, because he'd been to India before, and I looked back and I thought, wow, he was like 39, right? And it's gone so quickly. So we look at these grievances and, and we realize, I don't want to devote my life to just that recollection. And if this is what someone devoted their life to, to being that petty or that cruel or that mean, you know, that's a pretty sad story, really. And so there is a kind of compassion that comes from that. And that's enough. You know, forgiveness, I think, is one of those words that's a little too um, 
easy to say, you know, and hard to understand. It takes, not that it's impossible, but it takes a real examination. You know, what does it mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay, we'll do one more and then we're going to stop. Thank you, Sharon. Huh? Um, you said that uh, with all the love and kindness in your heart, take action, which was uh, so clear and beautiful. Um, yeah. Um, these days, I find my heart also has a outrage. Outrage is a very strong tone there. And uh, frustration, self-righteous indignation, um, mm-hmm. hatred. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess I'm wondering how I can... Is it just a matter of focus? I just shift my focus to the loving kindness and just let the other things... Or how to, how well, do I would that? actually suggest shifting your focus to action. You know, like... Um, Anger, for example, in, in the Buddhist psychology, has a positive side to it, which is energy. And it has some uh, real negative sides to it. Again, not from feeling it, but when we're really wrapped around it and it overtakes us. You know, when it's that strong, um, anger is likened to a forest fire which burns up its own support, which means it can devastate the host. It devastates us. And like a forest fire, it can burn really wild so that you might end up somewhere you really don't want to be. So the task, and it's, you know, it's, it's a challenge, but possible, is to capture the energy of it and use the energy. So I wouldn't try to fix everything, but um, really see what you are passionate about and do it. And at the same time, certainly cultivating loving kindness or you know, seeing if you could uh, really experiment with, you know, coming from a different place. Uh, but don't, you know, don't put down what you're feeling because of what you're feeling and use it in, in some way that... Um, now I'll talk about my most recent book again, just as we close, um, which I was, which is called Real Love, and it's love for oneself, love for another... And then the third section is love for all beings everywhere. So that brings up these kinds of questions. Like when you think the world is really in an awful state, what do you mean loving kindness or compassion for all beings? And I uh, turned in the book. I was in England. I was about to sit a retreat. And England was one of the countries that was in the original publication deal. So um, it turned out that the British publisher became the editor for the book. And... um, her main critique of what I turned in was she said, you didn't end it. And I said, of course I ended it. That's why I turned it in. And she said, well, you didn't really end it. You told the story, and then you just drifted off, in, which I do. And, uh, and I could not end the book. And months went by, and I would just stare at that computer screen because as far as I knew, I'd ended the book, and nothing came. And then the election happened, and I ended the book in 15 minutes. I did. <laughs> I was having dinner with a friend. I was at a conference in San Diego. I flew out the day after the election. Um, and we're having dinner. And he said, you've got this really funny look in your eye. And you said, I have to go to my room and write. And the way I ended it was saying, if love is an ability, which is where I started, if love is an ability, maybe it's also our responsibility. Right? So here we are. We want a world with more love. Guess who's got to do it? You know? But at the same time, I would find an outlet, you know, a real channel for that, that energy. You're welcome. Thank you all so much.
We're just going to sing for a few minutes to close out the evening. And uh, I know for a lot of you who are new to this practice of chanting, it's a little weird to come out on a Tuesday night and sing with a bunch of strangers. Um, but this uh, practice is like a pathway that leads to the same place but has a little different flavor to it. So it's one I've um, gravitated towards at different times in my life and other years I'll, I'll do, I'll work with um, meditation. So of course, this is very repetitive, this process of repeating a mantra over and over again. And it's kind of to give us like a chance, like a fighting chance. <laughs> because really what we're doing here is so radically different from what's happening the rest of the day. Um, shifting the way we're paying attention. And, um, of course, it's not about fabricating a certain experience sometimes. It can feel really full and lots of emotion, and other times it's dry and boring. So, uh, slowly, though, you build that muscle to gather yourself into the anchor of the practice. So we'll do a few minutes close. How's that, Kevin? Closer? We're fiddling with technology here. Good. Um, I always feel so lucky to uh, do this practice with amazing musicians. Uh, we have Tom on Kirtons and Terrence on Dolok. Noah Hoffeld is on cello and John Key Cable singing response vocals. Day one.
Thank you so much. Thank you to Tayana and the whole team here at ABC who just give us this amazing refuge to come and practice. And uh, we'll see you around. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com. <laughs>